Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is the definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed his dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm all right. Thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, today we have on writer, producer, director, sometimes actor, Mr. Simon Barrett. You might recognize his name from such films as Your Next, The Guest, and the now long-running anthology series VHS. Uh, and I will say I recently saw, I guess actually it's not recently, it's now many, 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 many months ago, um, the newest VHS movie, Simon. And I don't remember mm. if I told you at the time, I think it's the best one. Well, thank you so much. I, they just announced a fifth one, uh, Looming on the Horizon. So that is... Like every franchise that I've ever worked on that people ask for sequels to, I'm like, well, they keep giving you VHS sequels. Can't you just be happy with that? <laughs> like, like, sure, and there's no You're Next or the guest sequel directly in the works, but like VHS 6 is going to be chugging along. 
Like nice. we did, we did do it at one time. I do like Frankenfish a lot. I knew yeah. Steve was going to bring up Frankenfish. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that one. So hopefully one of these days get a sequel. Well, you know, I mean, we're, uh, they're just waiting. They're just waiting for the, you know, the cultural climate to be exactly right again. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, another invasive species uh, scandal. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's great though. But anyway, sorry. Well, actually, that was my first uh, <laughs> right, right. That was my first like right for hire job. That was my first. Uh, well, I was going to say hey, that seems like a perfect segue. As we before we get into things, we always like to ask our guests origin stories. Just you know, how you how you got into the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, for me, it actually was, I guess, Frankenfish. Um, you know, I'd, I was living in New York. I was working as a private investigator and I was having a pretty good life. I was in my early 20s. Um, I wasn't, you know, too depressed yet, but, you know, I didn't know how I was going to start really making movies, which is what I wanted to do. Um, I'd gone to film school, but I'd focused on cinematography. And I didn't really have like the resources I, I felt to start making, you know, totally like no budget movies, but like you all did, like, hey, stop stabbing me. Um, you know, I, I was kind of trying to figure out like how to do something like that, really. Uh, and I wrote a film called Dead Birds, which my plan was to shoot it myself on 16 millimeter in uh, kind of mid-Missouri where I'm from. And I sent it to a buddy of mine from film school to see if he would be willing to act in it. And at the time he was working as an assistant to, uh, the, to a guy named Ash Shaw who ran a company called Silver Nitrate that did kind of negative pickup deals for Sony at the time, basically making low budget movies uh, that were kind of designed for the DVD market. I should say this is around 2002. Um, so this is DVD boom. Any movie that kind of could be made for under 10 million would be profitable selling discs worldwide. And that was the only reason Hey Stop Stabbing Me got released. I guess for listeners who don't know, that was a movie uh, my writing partner Pat and I made when we were 20 in Minnesota for about like $300, $500. Um, but yeah, it was just that exact right time where pretty much if it was feature length and you could call it a movie, you could probably get it packaged somewhere. And there were some big, you know, successes of that era, you know, like that was where like Adam Green's hatchet, like made like, you know, mm -hmm. it was like $25 million, you know, just like selling discs in like, in like big box stores. Um, definitely things have changed since then. But, uh, you know, in every era, there's kind of angles of opportunity for, for low budget or no budget filmmakers um, like myself to kind of find an entry point. And it turned out my entry point was this script to dead birds by writing like a, a cheap horror movie that was genuinely cheap, where like, as I've been writing the script, I've been thinking like, oh, I don't want to give myself anything I can't achieve, uh, you know, for 60 grand, which is just like this random number that I was convinced that I would be able to, <laughs> you know, raise myself essentially from friends and family. Um, I had actually written uh, what became a $1.5 million kind of small studio horror movie, but that like ticked all the boxes. Like people looked at the script and were like, oh yeah, we can, we can make this and, and put like a ghost on the cover and it'll make money, um, which I'm sure it did for someone. But, uh, but that was my entry point. That film ended up being directed by a gentleman named Alex Turner. Um, and it, we had a great cast, uh, Stevie Edlin, Ryan Johnson's DP shot it. He'd just done May, but obviously hadn't done any Star Wars movies yet. Shot it on 35 millimeter. I got to be on set. I got to really learn a lot from that, you know, seeing how that was done. But basically, you know, this it, Sony Sony's kind of partner in this basically just said like you know we would 
make this, but we wouldn't let you direct it. You know, you don't have any, you don't really have any acceptable directing samples. And I said, you know, sure. Cause the, you know, cause they were offering me, I think 30,000 just to buy the script, which was, you know, half what I conceived the budget of the film to be. So I saw this as a total victory for me. Um, you know, in retrospect, my career very much stalled out for several years after that. And, you know, maybe I could have done some, some things better. Um, but I was very much just kind of along for the ride. And uh, Silver Nitrate turned around really quickly and were like, additionally, you know, Screen Gems has this idea, you know, there's been an invasive snakehead fish uh, viral <laughs> news story. This is back when viral news stories would last like an entire week um, on like the printed page as opposed to like just a couple hours. And this, um, this, you know, this snakehead fish that could survive for short periods on land due to its vestigial lungs um, had been basically dumped in a few Maryland lakes. People were freaking out because it was decimating the local pop populations and they called it a frankenfish for whatever reason, I guess, because it, <laughs> it was kind of an amphibian's thing. Um, but that was, the, that was the viral news thing was frankenfish. So they were convinced that anything with that title, that basically they just had to be first Anything with the title Frankenfish was going to be box office gold. Now, anyone doing the kind of math here is like, well, wait, if this story was viral for a week, surely in the year or so it takes to make even the, the, the cheapest, smallest films, no one would be talking about this or even remember it by the time the film came out. And that's, of course, exactly right. Uh, there were other films that tried to cash in on this franchise, including a film called Snakehead Terror um, that has its merits over Frankenfish, I would say. But, uh, but that was my first, like, right for hire thing where they're like, we'll give you $10,000 if you can crank out a script that's, like, kind of an anaconda ripoff, but we want it to be with these killer fish. And I was like, yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> you know, sure. I, <laughs> I, I, you know, thinking kind of the way that I always do throughout my career, which is like, well, uh, certainly like there's no one that's that much better than me at doing something like that. So I should definitely claim confidence in my ability to do it. You know, like, like there's definitely worse people who've been hired to do a worse <laughs> job than me. So, so, you know, put me in. Uh, and, and I think they were pretty happy, you know, ultimately that was a rare film. Um, and that was my first experience uh, dealing with writing credit where, you know, I, at a certain point I realized that the director, Mark DePay, great guy, but he didn't really like a lot of my humor. And he was just kind of asking me to subtract all the jokes from the script while not really changing anything else about it. And I was, and I was like, you know, uh, why don't, you know, he'd, he'd mentioned bringing in his own writer to do that job. And I was kind of like, you know, why don't you, uh, why don't you in fact do that? Um, I don't need to keep grinding on these rewrites, you know, that I'm not getting paid for, uh, you know, and, and ultimately, uh, you know, that when that writer asked for credit, I was like, absolutely sure. Cause I don't want, I don't want credit <laughs> for lines that I didn't write, mm -hmm. you know, so that was my first, uh, my first experience being like, yeah, you know, like, like I'm happily willing to share credit um, with anyone who's, who's changed anything. Um, and if, you know, and if they haven't, then I would like full credit, you know, I guess if that situation ever came up, but, you know, but that was my first experience with that. And then I ran into that guy years later and he was really nice to me because, you know, honestly, that is a, one of those big weird residual movies that like, you know, I have a lot of movies like you're next and, and the guests that I haven't seen like any money from since they came out, but like Frankenfish every year, a couple hundred dollars of like writer's guild residuals because like it's sold somewhere in some way and it's play, it's always playing on television somewhere. Um, Was you know, that a writer's guild movie or is that the kind of weird like, because I have a couple projects that weren't writer's guild movies and I feel like 10 years later, 
before I was even in the guild, they kind of tracked me down and they're like, we've somehow accumulated some of this money in residual. I don't, I don't quite understand what it works because it was not a guild film. Yeah, Frank- that it, well, it falls into this negative pickup category, right? Which is uh, it was not. I mean, this is why these negative pickup uh, deals essentially exist. And hopefully I'm not speaking too much out of order here. But, you know, essentially the deal is the major studios can't do movies non-union. But, you know, small independent companies, of course, can. And they don't have the same agreements with the guild. So, you know, so they'll make these movies financing them essentially through third parties so they can do them non-union. But then in turn, if the film does get released, picked up by the major studio, those residuals do come back to you if you are a guild member. So no, it was the same thing. I mean, I didn't join the Writers Guild until I would say 2013, which is, uh, you know, I want to say it's about 10 years after doing Frankenfish. Uh, I, I was not in the Writers Guild for a really long yeah, time. Yeah, same here. Um, and, and uh, you know, yeah, and I mean, uh, I was even like a, an, a, an ancillary member or an auxiliary member or something where like I could go to screenings and hang out, but I couldn't get like health insurance because I had like, <laughs> I had like almost enough weird credits to get in. But, you know, they were always cool with me, you know, like, like on your next, I remember they called me up and they're like, well, you know, if you flip this to a guild project, you can get in a guild. I was like, I'm a producer on this. If I flip it to a guild project, I can't make the movie, you know? And, and they were like, Oh yeah, fair enough. You know? Um, you know, and then obviously once I was in, I, I, I was in uh, and I had health insurance and, and I wasn't rocking any boats, but yeah, Frankenfish was, you know, and, and, you know, luckily also like during the strike and stuff, you know, I was able to like totally not work and stuff. So when the guild looked at me, they were like, you know, okay, this is a guy who just had a day job and, wasn't getting offered any work during the strike. <laughs> so I, I was able to toe the line the way, the way I'm, I'm supposed to. But, um, and, you know, and I do in general uh, strongly support our union, but they didn't let me in for a very long time. And Frankenfish was a non-union deal that eventually did kind of garner like union residuals just through, through the fact that it was eventually, uh, you know, a major studio release. And so what was happening? Cause as you said, there was kind of a, a gap then in between Frank and fish and your next credits. Were mm-hmm. you working on things still, or was that just kind of a truly fallow period? Yeah. I mean, my career just truly like dried up, um, you know, after that, like, you know, I was out here in LA at that point, you know, I'd written dead birds and Frank and fish, but neither one of them, you know, was that well received Frank and fish, like kind of being what it is, you know, I, I, I certainly, see the charm of it. I mean, certainly if you watch it, it's pretty clear that what they tried to get was an anaconda ripoff and they just hired someone who like was just going to rip off tremors. And that like mm-hmm. the things that are good about that film are just me applying the tremors model to, to something that they wanted the anaconda model applied to. Steve um, and I both liked it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and dead birds, you know, dead birds certainly has its, has its strengths. I think the cast is really good. I think it's like a good looking film. I think it's well directed, but like, had a very eye catching uh, box cover on the yeah, video store shelf. Ghost kid. I think, uh, I think we all hated that, but, but it was, <laughs> you know, it, it, didn't do, it, it didn't do that well. I mean, it, it premiered at the Toronto international film festival. That was great. That was how I met Colin Geddes back when he was running the midnight section. So, you know, I had some contacts and stuff, but like, my career was just kind of going nowhere and, and no, you know, I didn't have an agent really. I didn't have a manager who was doing anything for me during that period. And so, yeah, I was just kind of trying to write like small movies. I, I kind of went back to my original mold. I was back working a day job as a PI and I was back uh, trying to write, you know, small enough movies that I could get them kind of independently financed. 
And, you know, ironically, again, you know, at that point, at that point, it felt like I was farther away from being able to direct these myself than like ever before. Like I'd taken a few steps back because now I was like known as a known quantity as like a bad screenwriter. Um, <laughs> and and not, like, you know, which is better than being an unknown quality. You know, it's always better to be able to point to a feature and say, you know, I did that than being able to point to like a stack of scripts and say, you know, I did those blueprints for entertainment that you might enjoy. Um, you know, it's definitely better to have, you know, that, that, that finished credit, you know, so I was, I certainly had my foot in the door, but definitely not completely. Um, cause you know, Alex and I were able to get the financiers of dead birds and Frankenfish to take another crack on us, uh, going through Sony. And that was through a film that ultimately became called red sands. When I wrote it, it was called the stone house and it was going to be kind of our follow-up to dead birds, you know, these, um, he wanted to do this trilogy of kind of like war set horror movies based on kind of my original idea for dead birds and what it was supposed to be about. And so, yes, yeah, so again, we started off making this ambitious project shooting on film. And then when that movie was finished, that's when really the WGA strike happened. And so the studio just had nothing to do except kind of tinker with that movie until they decided to just like release it essentially with its effects unfinished. Um, I mean, it wasn't even like, you know, it, it was one of those like direct to video releases where like, it, you know, it doesn't even seem like it's a blip on the radar. You know, you don't see it in like, <laughs> any, any of the video stores that you frequent, you know, they don't have it. You know, it's just like, you know, one Best Buy and like, you know, Tempe, Arizona has like five copies. <laughs> it, you know, I don't think it never came out on Blu-ray. It was a DVD only release. And, and I and that was like, like Dead Birds, you know, it was hard to disappoint with the release during that era, but like I was managing to do it. And and furthermore, that was the first time really that I ever wrote a film that turned out significantly worse than my vision for it to the point where I kind of started to wonder, like, what am I even doing here? You know, like, like, it's like, I'm, I'm not selling out, but like, I might as well be, you know, the work is not something I'm ultimately like proud of that like speaks to the themes that I was trying to, you know, like, like work through at the time. So I was really discouraged. Um, unfortunately, I'd, I'd been hanging out with my buddy Adam Wingard a lot, um, who was similarly really discouraged. You know, he'd had a, he had had a festival success um, called Pop School, which was a movie that he made for about, about $3,000 ultimately. Um, a lot of which apparently was some used car that they like bought and destroyed over the course of making the <laughs> film, but it's not on screen for some reason. Um, and, you know, and he was, he was working with my buddy Evan Katz on that. And I'd met them when we were all in Alabama making films together when I was doing Dead Birds there and they were doing a film called Homesick. Um, and so, you know, we were hanging out. He was in L.A. taking meetings and, you know, having really a similar experience that I was, you know, which is we were going out for meetings on like films that we didn't even want. Um, you know, I really memorably will never forget pitching Toy Story 2. Not sorry, not Toy Story 2. Uh, I wish. Uh, Toy Soldiers 2. Uh, the, the, like, this is the Will Wheaton, like kids in a boarding oh, school no kind of thing, pitching, pitching toy soldiers to, cause my agent had gotten me that meeting to a group of executives that I realized were confused because they thought they were getting red dawn to, um, they, they confused the two films. Did you realize that like mid pitch or when? Well, they, you... they realized it and they were like, Oh, you know, we realized like this entire time when we were talking about toy soldiers, we've been thinking of red dawn. Yeah. We don't even want this. Um, oh, no. and I was like, well, and I was just like, oh man, like, I mean, they were like, so it was just such a disaster. You know, I'd worked on this like pitch of like how to do like, you know, a diehard in a prep school, modern diehard in a prep school movie. 
And it turns out, you know, they weren't even, th- it, it was such like a fake meeting. It wasn't even like on their agenda in the, in the well, way what that was, they like, what was the right. toy soldiers to premise. Well, I, I honestly, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not even just saying this. Like, I honestly don't remember. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't good. I mean, the truth is this isn't what I'm like, this isn't, this, this wasn't something I'd ever set out to do in my career. And while it would be way better, you know, well, writing movies like this is way better than having a real job. It wasn't what I wanted to do. And, and, and the main reason for that is that I didn't necessarily think I had any special talent for it. Um, I think I'm good at coming up with like, you know, some original stuff, but like, if I'm not actually a fan of something, I think that like, look, I think the ingredients you kind of need to make something good based on, let's just use the phrase existing IP an existing franchise is the creators need to have a genuine passion as fans for the material. That's the first one. And then the studio has to have the confidence to pander to that fan base with what they want the film to be rather than saying, okay, we've already got those people. Let's try to get everyone else. Um, those are the two things you kind of need. But the number one thing is I think you genuinely need creators who are excited to be working on it. Cause I've done a lot of these things now. Um, some have been made, some haven't, but you know, for better or worse, whether I think it turned out good tends to come down to like those two factors the filmmakers being genuine fans and having genuine understanding in the studio. You can't count on that at a studio level, but what you can count on is for like them to at least be like, okay, we need to make this like the purest form of what it is to appeal to people in order to and not fight against what it is. That's so, a, that, toy, yeah. no, I was going to say that's a trip toy soldiers too. Cause that shit came out in like 91. And then like five years later, they did masterminds was like kind of like the same movie with kids in a school, but I, it's, yeah, it's a, well, I think they did ultimately make a toy soldiers too, just like they did ultimately remake red dawn. Um, the different <laughs> studio, of course. Uh, different right they did sure. remake it oh crazy i never uh oh, yeah. red dawn red dawn got remade that was a quite famous yeah, with Hemsworth. Uh, remake. yeah. that was the that was the remake where they changed uh, the enemy's uh, nationality in post oh that's right that was, okay. a, that was the red the red dawn remake is, is a is a forgotten chapter of hollywood history that i'm i'm all i'm quite fascinated by well because it right. was china and they changed it to north korea is that that, yeah. that's correct yep yep and and i think it was yeah at the time people were really like whoa this is this is interesting like we're going you know we're going all this trouble <laughs> uh to get this movie released in china which it never would be anyway um <laughs> the film actually I, I the ironic thing is that red dawn remake with chris hemsworth i think did do pretty well i think it was a success but i think it, you know just the process of making it sounds not fun it was like two years or something for it to come out, or I, I forgot. Yeah, I, I remember they were yeah. working on it forever. Jesus Christ, it was shelved. Yeah, yeah. I just and realized the Top Gun Maverick figured out how to do it. It's just, yeah, just have an enemy. There's <laughs> just an enemy out there. I, like, I yeah, remain, exactly. I, I remain so impressed. Not that they got away with that because it's a big Tom Cruise movie. I think he can kind yeah. of do whatever he wants, but it basically it worked. Like if you if you were telling me, oh, we're making this, you know, military movie. And the bad guys, we're not going to say we're just never going to say who they're fighting, but they are fighting someone. We're not going to say what country they're going to when they're talking about the missions. I'd be like, that's not going to work. But it did. No one really cares. Uh, Yeah, no, no one cares. I mean, you know, people just want to enjoy their awesome plain action movie, probably myself included. And, you know, the fact that we're fighting some 
ambiguous enemy out there that somehow is more has has a more funded military than we do you know you just kind of yeah like okay so we have to like embrace the world of fiction to kind of justify the way we treat our military in these films but i would almost rather we do that than than like you know drum up whatever you know our cold war enemy of of the decade is and then like scramble in apologies you know two decades later when they're funding our economy um, I, I would rather we go the Top Gun route and just be like, yeah, we've got enemies. I mean, <laughs> if you watch the news, that's basically the gist, the gist of your understanding of it, probably. So, yeah, we'll leave it at that. It's, it's othering to the uh, like true nth degree of just like, it doesn't even matter. It's, it's very interesting. <laughs> Ideologically, it's very interesting. And certainly it says something about kind of like our, our cultural attitude. But I mean, you know, was I was I enjoying watching those planes go by each other in IMAX? You bet I was. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, wait, what were you going to say, Steve? Oh, no, nothing. I just remember, wasn't there a Michael Pere movie with Anthony Michael Hall that kind of ripped off Top Gun? I'm trying to remember where Michael Anthony Hall was an actor and he had to get trained to fly a, a jet fighter. Oh, wait, it wasn't it wasn't Air America. It, but it was because uh, that was something else. But it was something like that. Yeah, um, like the uh, American yeah. Air. <laughs> no, that's some like yeah. Michael Anthony Hall was like an actor, and then and then he had to I, hang out with the tough guy pilot Michael wait, Perrier. Am I confusing this with the hard way? It, you know, hard it's kind of like it might be the double Michael feature. J. Fox and James and Woods. James Woods. Yeah. Okay. This is the yeah. Anyway, it sounds anyway. interesting. Anyway, yeah. I, I'm sorry. And then I just kind of <laughs> tripped out in realizing there was also two other. High school, uh, there was Corey Haim had two movies where he was facing off against terrorists in schools, uh, Demolition High and Demolition University. I didn't realize how big that that fucking genre was in the 90s, kids and high schools and terrorists. Anyway, well, it, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, when you're a kid in high school, you you, you have these kind of fantasy fantasies of like, mo- like opportunities for heroism. So, you know, it, it like which is kind of what the diehard movies are in, in their nutshell is, you know, obviously mm-hmm. it's enjoyable to see you know, the, the actual construction of a diehard movie, um, you know, a heist and with like, you know, flying the ointment is always like a great narrative approach. But what people really love about those movies is just like, you know, this notion, this notion of this average character that you identify with having the opportunity to be heroic. And I think kids indulge in those fantasies more than anyone else, especially in school, because you have nothing else to do. So I, I'm, I'm inherently like not opposed to school, school action movies. Uh, although, um, I think it'd be tough to tougher to get made now, actually, toy soldiers than like ever before. Uh, yeah, <laughs> You're right. Yeah, totally. Lots of yeah. guns in school. By the way, that movie is nineteen. Uh, well, it's listed as nineteen ninety two on Wikipedia, ninety one on IMDb. Uh, it's called Into the Sun, which is described oh. as a conceited young Hollywood star teams up with a serious Air, Air Force pilot when researching a new role. So it is exactly the hard way. Uh, unfortunately, way, but top down, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, they are shot down by enemy planes, captured, and find themselves in a life or death situation. Michael Paré, Anthony Michael Hall. Oh, right on. So a little bit of. It feels like like Michael Paré and Anthony Michael Hall are like a direct downgrade from James Woods and Michael J. Fox during that like, period of time. <laughs> it's like the the direct like like one step down for kind of both of them. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah. With saying that, with all love towards Michael, oh, no, totally. Michael Hall, of course. I mean, he came back with the Dead Zone, you know. And oh he yeah, had, he had that badass movie where he's in fucking California. What's it called? Out of Bounds. So yeah, he, he had his moments. In the- he's doing great. 
I assume yeah. I assume Dead Zone, you know, will like he's, he'll be fine forever. I think when you if you mm-hmm. had a TV show that lasted that long during that period of time, as far as I can tell, you just you're just, mm-hmm. you're just good. You're just good yeah. forever. Um, I always feel when you wonder, like, you know, especially some long running show from like the 70s or 80s when like you really were making those like rerun syndication monies. But, you know, like an actor will have been on a pretty big show and you're always like, whatever happened to them? And you think about it for a second. Probably nothing. They were just like, well, that's it. I don't have to work. Yeah, they probably just invested, you know, a quarter of their money in a winery up north, and you know, and just like live every day peacefully, uh, <laughs> as opposed to the actors <laughs> that we know what happened to them because they're constantly on the internet showing us uh, how many ill they've become. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I know which way I have to go. Yeah, I, I'm always blown away by TV, especially in, like network TV, which is you know where where real money is is still made. You know, you're just like someone will just say something like, you know, like like Grey's Anatomy is still on the air and you're just like, no, that's, that's impossible. That thing you just said. Like that's, that's literally like you've just said an impossible thing. Cause I, I check Twitter every day and therefore I'm aware that the most popular shows in America at any given time are, are Rick and Morty and whatever's on HBO that month. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, I, so I know, I know my, you know, I do my research and then, you know, and then you'll be like, wait, like Lucifer's been on for like eight seasons. Wait, what is it? You know, <laughs> so these shows are just like, you know, incredible. Like, I had no idea. It's these like incredible, incredible, like, yeah, I, I guess I would say actual mainstream cultures that still exist. Um, but because so they're all, speaking of where you're like, whatever happened to that actor? And I'll look them up and I'm like, oh, they've been starring on some procedural <laughs> yeah. for like 10 years. That <laughs> they, I don't they've watch. been making a million dollars an episode <laughs> yeah. on like on a CSI spinoff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. If you if you were told me that like Michael Pere was starring in like you know CSI Boise uh, and and making you know one point five million an episode, I would just like completely nod and be like, "Yep." Yeah, he's probably on some firefighter spinoff show that we don't watch. But it, but it has like viewership numbers that exceed like all of our work combined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Well, so yep. during this time, because now we're getting up to where you and Wingard did a horrible way to die. Were, yeah. did you, were you having any swing and misses as far as like almost getting other projects off the ground that just didn't happen? No, I mean, you know, I, I was pitching for things, you know, intermittently. I, I think I had agency representation at that time uh, through Gersh uh, for a little bit. You know, when Adam and I went off to make a horrible way to die, I remember we just like had no reps at all at that point. We, we'd gradually been dropped by everyone um but but yeah i mean there were like but it was nothing like um it was nothing that we really you know put our hearts into i mean we had we had some original films uh that we tried to get off the ground um you know that we would try to get financed and a horrible way to die just happened to be the first one that people actually really went for and i think kind of what we were learning from those earlier movies is we were trying to do more you know adam and i kind of realized really quickly that we wanted to work together and that, like, I felt like the way that he shot things in a very improvisational way would lend itself well to kind of my, you know, obsession with kind of character and narrative and, and you know, the fact that I really wanted, you know, every scene to have kind of like a tight focus. And it felt like, you know, the two of us working together would would kind of get the best of each other. And I just really felt like Adam was kind of good at everything I wasn't, you know, at that time in terms of like independent filmmaking. And... You know, and I think in turn he didn't want to write. So there's that. <laughs> uh, you know, but I, but I, you know, but I was really hands-on producing a lot of those early movies too. And I just felt at that point in my career, I'd, I'd learned how to do that. I'd seen people who were doing it. And again, it was that thing where, like, I know they're not better than me. I know they don't work harder than me. I know they're not smarter than me. So I guess I can do this. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so, 
you know, so, so again, it was, it was, uh, you know, we tried to make a hundred, uh, horrible way to die for, I think our budget that we actually put together was like 135 K. Um, and we had an earlier film that was like about a, a kid who committed a murder as a child, um, kind of trying to reassimilate to society and, and deal with the fact that everyone in a small town, like, you know, hates him for what he did. It was actually very similar to um, that Andrew Garfield movie uh, that came out around that time called Boy A, which was kind of the main reason we were like, well, we shouldn't probably do this because it's, it's quite similar to Boy A. Um, and, and no one was really interested in that. And that's when we were really like, well, what is getting financed at like the level that we're really talking about here, which is like about $100,000. And it's like, it's like direct-to-video serial killer movies. And, and we were like, okay, well, why don't we really like try to do a direct-to-video serial killer movie and we'll get like, you know, the people that finance those things, they'll finance ours, but we can, you know, we can, John sales it up, you know, we can do something weird and artsy with it, you know? And, and ultimately that was pretty much exactly what we were able to do because we found, you know, we found a financing producer, Zach Zeman, who really had actual faith in the project and, and kind of got specifically what we were going for before that we were meeting with some people who like i mean truly like you know the kind of meetings where they were like you know you'd be talking to like a married guy and he'd be like you know this is great if you can write a 15 page role for my like mistress you know i'll put i'll put, I'll, I'll put 100k into it like like literally, literally those conversations and you know and we'd leave being just like fuck like can we do that you know like <laughs> what is the role for her like you know i i don't is the could the movie still be good you know, we haven't met this person. Can she act? Like, you know, like we weren't, we were not opposed to those things, but that's like the level of like people that we were, you know, being kind of forced to deal with. Unfortunately, Brad Miska and Zach Zeman really bailed us out on that. Um, and we were able to make, you know, the movie ultimately was made for about 80,000, uh, including post, but we were able to again, get into Toronto. And that was really when our careers kind of started, uh, both Adam and me. It was, was a horrible way to die because that was, that was the movie that like, most closely resembled what we wanted it to be, you know, and whether people kind of liked it or not, which mostly they didn't. Um, and, and I think still don't, you know, it's still, I think not a very well-regarded film, but you had to like, you couldn't watch it and not be like, well, these guys weren't trying anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you couldn't, you couldn't like look at it and say like, there's a laziness here or anything like that. You had to look at it and be like, well, you know, this is definitely people attempting to get like a worldview across. And then I think once we were able to, to piggyback off that, get slightly more financing, this time from Snoot Entertainment to do your next. Um, and then your next led to working with Snoot on the guest. You know, I think those three films together are still probably like the closest we've come to like actually getting like our vision onto a screen um, in terms of like our sensibility. And, you know, none of those movies were successful. Uh, which is the problem, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, 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 you know, but it's enough that you, it's enough that you can kind of keep going. Yeah. yeah. I remember that. Uh, uh, Cause as we were talking about before we started recording, I have a whole host of unmade movies uh, with Snoot dating back to like, mm -hmm. like 2003. Uh, so I remember um, like then when you guys kind of came out, that was like about the time we uh, stopped, not stop talking to them, but like stop attempting to get any of these movies off the ground. And we're like, oh man, now they're finally getting all these horror movies made uh, with these other guys. Um, but yeah. I remember your next. And then they managed to lose money on that. And then they were like, we're never <laughs> making horror movies again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like, okay, <laughs> that works too. Because <laughs> uh, actually, I didn't even th thought about this. 
probably the first time I literally met you was going in for, you know, like a friends and family kind of like, I guess, test screen, you'd call it with your next. Um, and not to rub salt in the wound, since I'm sure you've already been through everyone through this, but it was just one of those like, oh, this movie's great. Like, I really feel like this movie's going to make something. And it did have that feeling of like everything was going right. It had that super cool marketing campaign that I, I don't know if you ultimately felt like it was, was the marketing campaign like too cool? Like, did it not quite appeal to, you know, uh, Joe well, Schmo, I mean, or... <laughs> you know, the problem with your next is just that it sat on the shelf for two years between its premiere and its release. I mean, I think, you know, and in the time that it sat on the shelf, like, like literally we saw movies that had been influenced by it come oh, out, no. yeah. Be- you know, before it, you know, we, like we knew that we, you know, people who'd seen it at festivals were like, I'm going to do something like that. And their movie actually came out, you know, before ours, the purge of, you know, is a movie that like didn't exist when we made your next, but like when I first saw your next trailer in theaters, it was before Fede Alvarez is evil dead. And our trailer followed a trailer to the purge. And you could just feel the lack of energy in the theater. Just like, oh, wait, another one of these fucking like mass foundation things. Masks but this, but this one doesn't have fucking Ethan Hawke in it. Like this one's even <laughs> cheaper. Like, like, fuck this. You know, it, I, I mean, I really think that was it. And, you know, the only reason it sat on a shelf is because we got acquired by a company that, that a month later was going through one of these mergers. And, you know, we're lucky, you know, honestly, we're lucky your next got a wide theatrical release at all. I, I think at the time that Lionsgate put your next out in theaters, it was the widest release that a movie under a million dollars had ever gotten. You know, I mean, obviously movies like the Blair Witch Project came out wide, but those were like rollout releases, whereas they just put us in 2,500 theaters, um, which I, I truly like, I mean, I could, I could stand corrected, but I don't think that had happened before. Uh, and, you know, maybe with good reason, but, you know, it, it, it was, it was nice to be like contending with real movies. You know, I, I'm, I'm very happy with your next, you know, look, you kind of, the, you can go one of two ways with these things, obviously in Hollywood, you can kind of have the, like the big kind of cool movie success that like sets your career on the right footing and, and, you know, gives you opportunities or you can kind of have the movie that like doesn't do that well, isn't that well received, but develops like a very like devout or devoted, I should say, uh, kind of cult following, which is what both, you know, the guest and your next have been kind of lucky enough to receive. Um, I feel like I've kind of, you know, been able to experience both a little ways and that like, you know, the, the VHS movies were just this kind of unexpected hit, you know, we were doing those for just a couple hundred thousand each and, uh, you know, they, they, they did really well, not in a way that like any of us really directly benefited from, but it was good for our, <laughs> it was good for our careers, like, you know, I, I mean, financially, I should say, but like, but I mean, those were really kind of positive movies in, in a way and that like, they were instantly well received and we were instantly like, oh, let's just do another one. <laughs> and like, and then people liked it, and, you know, and, and so that's, you know, that was nice to have like the kind of experience of, I guess, like success. Um, but, you know, but I mean, if your next had been a huge hit, if it had opened to like 30 million or something, you know, and we had rushed into a sequel, um, you know, with Sharni and, and, you know, and all that, like, would our careers be in a worse place now? You know, would people have really figured out very quickly that we actually didn't have you know, a full idea for your next sequel. <laughs> it was just this like thing that like, you know, <laughs> when studios think they might have a hit, they want to know, can you turn this into any kind of franchise or can you turn this into anything else, you know? And, you know, and we were excited about that idea for a, a 
lot of reasons, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like I wrote your next and was like, and I can't wait to write the sequel. It was very much like a one and done narrative. Uh, and, and I'm happy to have films that kind of have stood the test of time in that way. I, I, again, I think it can go kind of one way or another, whereas you can have the career success right away and um, maybe maybe you make the right thing of that and you end up having like this awesome, you know, career and, and so on. Uh, but you also can, you know, get offered opportunities that you say yes to. Like, like I think Blair Witch is a good example of a film that, you know, I, I initially was pretty reluctant to engage on. And by the time we did engage on it, I kind of couldn't remember the reasons why I hadn't wanted to engage on it um, <laughs> initially, but then, but then you know, but then you do remember them eventually, you know. And and I think you know, I think if your next had been a big success, we just sort of been offered a bunch of things, you know, that we might not have turned into good movies instead of what we had to do, which was like really constantly be like, okay, that didn't do well, but we don't want to like completely start second guessing our creative decisions. So how can we do something? That's like, how can we pivot from our failure and turn it into success? And that's like always been, you know, what's been driving Adam and me. Like, so, you know, A Horrible Way to Die wasn't well received. So we delivered Your Next, which did well at festivals, but then wasn't well received in the real world. So we did The Guest, which wasn't well received really anywhere. And then that's when our careers kind of dried up again. I guess that's interesting. I was going to... Oh, uh, sorry. Go ahead, Steve. Oh, no, I, I saw that you did have a premise for your next two. It sounded kind of cool, though. Do you, can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah, I mean, the idea for your next two was, you know, that that Charnese Vincent's character of Aaron would have been, you know, railroaded basically into prison, you know, like like because no one no one else had survived the massacre. She's the only survivor. So she is, uh, you know, not incorrectly. Um, blamed for some of the killings, you know, her 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 murder of AJ Bowen, uh, Crispin's character at the end of your next would be an ambiguous thing to argue in a court of law. <laughs> she definitely does like like kill him, and he's not a threat to her. Um, but you know, obviously, we consider it the morally right choice at that point in the film. Um, so you know, so the idea was she was going to prison, and uh, we kind of wanted to take basically like this, uh, this idea that I've been talking to my buddy Josh Slates about forever, because we're both from mid Missouri of doing like a slasher in like an abandoned meth lab where <laughs> it's, it's been like pre-rigged with all like the booby traps um, that methamphetamine cooks create. You know, this is again was, you know, b before breaking bad uh, or should, I should say, or like, you know, during, during that era, like, like meth was still a, uh, you know, an, unta an untapped resource in Hollywood's uh, magic realms. And so uh, we kind of wanted to do like a meth lab horror thing, like Adam and I, but like the idea was it would kind of be like Cutthroat's Nine. She'd be in like a prison truck getting like transported. They'd all be kind of chained together, her and these other women, and the prison truck gets like attacked by the lamb mask guy who's just still alive. He just can't feel pain anymore because of where she stabbed him in his brain. And he's kind of found some of uh, some some more henchmen to kind of try to murder her as vengeance. And so it would be kind of a hunted, a, a scene of these kind of women being hunted through the woods. Um, they're all still kind of chained together and they get to this, this cabin, which initially feels quite safe. Um, but then they realize that like the cabin itself is kind of this weird, insane, like home alone death trap um, that like over the course of, you know, a year or so, the, the meth, cooks in it have been like gradually going like crazier and crazier and crazier and creating more and more elaborate traps um and they're also like still there they're like hidden in the walls 
Um, so, so it <laughs> would have been great. kind of, it, <laughs> yeah. it would have been, yeah. And actually, I mean, the funny thing is at the time, I mean, this just shows kind of like how much things have changed, but our, our goal was really actually to get our friend Gareth Evans, who'd just done the raid to direct it. Um, and, and see if he would, cause he was a big fan of your next. And in fact, um, in fact, he himself did the, did the censorship edits to get your next to play in, uh, Indonesia. Where he was oh, I didn't know time. that. That's yeah. Yeah. Gareth, Gareth Evans himself trimmed your neck so that it could pass the censorship board in Indonesia because he wanted it to come out there because um, he was just a fan of the movie. So now now he's working in Wales, but that was when him and his family were still in Jakarta um, working prep and raid two, I imagine. Um, and so, and we were talking about doing like a VHS two with him at that time. So, which he did. Uh, and so, <laughs> so yeah, so it was, it was going to be this more actiony thing, like, like set in like the rural Missouri woods, um and you know but it would that was you know that was like as far as we really ever got with it you know it was really clear pretty early on that like that our movie wasn't gonna do that well and then and then once it came out and people just were kind of like yeah there there was no market for that really quickly which is you know in some ways too bad but in some other ways like you know i mean maybe that movie would have come out and been bad you know it's hard to imagine if i mean if we could have got Gareth to do it, it would have been amazing. But uh, it's hard to imagine him really doing it now. In retrospect, I think he would just would have just <laughs> been like, "Guys, I'm doing my own sequel." Um, and so, you know, so who knows? You know, if we'd done it ourselves again, and you know, it, it wasn't the same kind of magic as the first film, you know, then maybe people would have just been like, "Oh, these guys are just kind of, uh, you know, they don't have any ideas. They're just trying to exploit their fan base or whatever." Whereas I think no one feels that way about us now because we're so visibly not successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, Adam Adam's now doing quite well, but but you can always but I'm always working with him, and you can always just like look, look over at me, and I'm always like frustrated and upset about something, and then people like know that we're you know we're not doing that great. Well, it's interesting the guest. Mm -hmm. um, you you were even kind of joking earlier about you know what hit shows you see on Twitter. It is, even though I know we're living in a bubble out here in the industry, uh, it's still sometimes hard for me to fully look past that. Because in my mind, the guest was like a big giant hit that everyone was talking about. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, you you experience things differently from inside the bubble. I mean, look, like the fact that Sinister got the release date that your next was supposed to get, and like was this big success. Robert Cargo, uh, you know, came up and apologized to us. He's like, by the way, I know we got your release date. <laughs> and our movie was a big hit and yours wasn't. I was like, yeah, but your movie was like about Bagul. Like, 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 like I, I think, I think your movie was a hit for reasons that are real reasons that our movie was not a hit for like real reasons. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, like, don't worry about it. But it, you know, it is one of those things where like, you know, we will always be vaguely pissed off about Sinister. Um, and like, and when it came to the guest, like, yeah, I mean, the guest is a movie that was very critically well received, but you know, we premiered that movie at Sundance and, and we couldn't get a sale. Um, and I think that was the first initial, like, oh, this is, this is like, we're having a different experience of this than everyone else. You know, the thing that I remember, the thing that I think has been kind of eclipsed by time is that, like, at the time that the guest premiered, we were premiering at the same time as Jim Mickle's Cold in July, but we were like a midnight movie and that was like a featured, you know, that was like a real Sundance movie that was like in competition. And like every review of us, every review of the guest mentioned cold in july because it was the other movie that was doing the carpenter font and had like an electronic score and was like this like kind of weird you know 80s throwback you know before that was 
ubiquitous. I mean, you know, again, like allegedly, you know, the Stranger Things team discovered the band survived from watching the guest and got them to score Stranger Things. And, you know, so it's one of those movies that like has a cultural imprint that I'm very proud of. But at the time, we just were the we were the movie that was like Cold in July, but people didn't like as much. Uh, that wasn't selling, <laughs> and mm. and if anything, I think the guest cost uh, about the same as Cold in July, and that made it even more, uh, even more even like tougher for us that we kind of felt like we were really failing. Um, and ultimately, you know, ultimately that was a movie that Snoop kind of put out themselves in theaters, and because we could, just could not ever get like an awesome sale for it, you know, we worked with them. Picture House to put it out, and they were really great. But you know, but it was it was not like a major profitable sale. It, it was kind of also you know the guest premiered in January of 2014, which was right before streaming services started buying everything. But like right after theatrical companies like IFC and Magnolia had realized that like buying movies like The Guest wasn't pro- going to be profitable for them uh, if the price tag was was too high. And you know, The Guest cost about four. 4.5 million to make, you know, it was not a cheap movie. It wasn't like your next where like, despite everything, we made that movie for under a million. So everything is a win. Like, you know, it's like, okay, people, anyone who's seen your next, it's like, haha, jokes on you. Like, you thought that was a, you <laughs> thought that was a real movie, you know? Um, like we made that, we made that in my hometown, but the guest was a real movie. And, and it was, you know, I know Adam really saw it as the first time he'd really been able to, you know, direct a movie in the way that he wanted to, as opposed to just like, what the what the necessities of the shoot kind of dictated and um you know for us um i think it, it was kind of an underwhelming response that has grown kind of every subsequent year but i mean we opened the same weekend as tusk and we got severely beaten by kevin smith's tusk <laughs> you know i mean there's just like little facts like that that just like you know a24 bought tusk a24 did not buy the guest you know like like they, we knew like who the cool companies were and we knew that they weren't dealing with us um and yeah like that was it and this was around the exact same time though as uh your attempted i saw the devil yeah right yeah we yeah we were also working with snoot on and um also uh a company that was called i i I think they're just called public domain now uh so you know because i can't even get their name right I'll just, I'll leave it at that. And, uh, but they were, they were pretty hands off, you know, they controlled the rights. Um, and then Keith Calder and Jess Wu at Snoot, you know, who we'd done your next and the guest was stepped in, um, and kind of co-bought the rights. Um, I did a draft that everyone was pretty happy with, but, you know, but that was really the, the, the real death of I saw the devil is, is just simply that if you look at what that movie is, it's really easy to think that it should be remade. Um, but then you have to remember that the original film was a flop in every single country it opened in, no matter what their standard was. It was a massive failure in Korea where, where it genuinely was kind of viewed as a bit of an embarrassment when it came out because, you know, Kim Ji-woon was at the top of his career and obviously the two leads in that, Lee Dong-hyun and Choi Min-sik were at the tops of their career. So it'd be like, I don't know. It would be like Chris Nolan doing it with like Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, and but it's this like serial killer movie that's like full of cannibalism and rape, and like like you know has to have like six minutes cut out of it to get an R rating. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's it, it's I, I this is all by the way. I should be clear. Things that I love about this movie that make it kind of the miracle that it is is that like mm-hmm. they made this film after a bittersweet life, and you know before you know, or no, it was was it after the good, the bad, the weird? It was and, after and, like, that. 
Yeah, that was so why was I knew off. who who Ji Woon was was from that. Yeah, and so the good, the bad, the weird was the biggest budget Korean movie ever, mm-hmm. but also the biggest Korean success ever. That was that period where you know, in any kind of new film culture, you get like the biggest success every three months. But still, that was the biggest movie ever, and and it's an incredible film. And so they were basically it was like it'd be like James Cameron like following up like you know, Avatar with the Serbian film or something. It was just not, <laughs> people just were not, they didn't want it. And, 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 you know, certain things like cannibalism are very taboo in a lot of Asian countries, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously a huge plot point in that film at certain, you know, and, and so there's certain things. And, and, you know, if you've seen it with, with the, with all the full sex scenes intact, you know, you get why it, different countries, it, it flopped, but even in America, you know, Magnolia bought it for a certain amount and it did not do well. Like it, it, it was a movie that consistently people like 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 horror fans loved it and gravitated to it, and you know and, and I remember seeing that um, it was in the same section as a horrible way to die at the Toronto Film Festival. So I went to go see its first screening. I was incredibly excited, and you know, you just I, I just came out of it and I was like, we're supposed to fucking compete with that? Like <laughs> our serial killer movie is in the same section of Toronto Vanguard as as I Saw the Devil. Like how the fuck are we going to compete with that? This movie shot for like you know. But as you know, the good, the bad, the weird shot for something like 300 days, I think I saw The Devil was 195 days shoot. Wow. The wow. way they shoot these movies in Korea is completely different to how we make films here. It's why a lot of Korean directors haven't really made the transition to Hollywood is because, you know, it, it's kind of like a lump, like a lump salary thing with a lot of crews. And you'll then like the films will sometimes take breaks to like edit, see what they've got, and then get back into shooting, you know, with like a new idea of what they're going to be shooting now. And it's like, it, it all sounds wonderful, you know, if you can make a movie that way, but it's also hard to compete with. And so we were kind of determined, all of this is kind of a long-winded way of saying that if we did I Saw the Devil, we didn't want to do the cheap version. We didn't want to do the $5 million version. We wanted to do like the $20 million version, basically, which, you know, but but we wanted, you know, we wanted like a Keanu Reeves in there or, or someone, you know. You know, at one point, Denzel Washington expressed interest in the project. And it was like, oh, my God, like, yes, any role, whatever, whatever you say, sir. You know, it's like actors like that were like really interested in it, you know, because the project has such a great premise. And again, I remember seeing it in Toronto and being like, wow, I loved that. But even in my even at the time, it was one of those rare movies that I actually was like, man, I would love to remake that because you could take that premise and go in a different direction with it and and still have like a great movie. But like you know, ultimately the way that he gets revenge on the killer in that movie felt, you know, was it totally satisfying? Like I, there were things that I wanted to explore with it. Um, I thought there was also, you know, like I also, we could do a version without a lot of sexual violence and, and <laughs> have it be a more, you know, straightforward kind of cathartic experience in some ways. Maybe that's, maybe that's a, a sellout thing to say, but, you know, I, I felt like there were ways that we could Americanize the story and actually make it, kind of better and more interesting, uh, maybe not better, more interesting than what the original film's doing, but certainly better and more interesting than like a lot of revenge movies. Um, you know, certainly we could compete with the likes of Taken, uh, was my feeling overall with I Saw the Devil. And, and I felt like, you know, I had a really good handle on it. Actors were very interested, um, but ultimately the price tag was the one that would require a studio partner. You know, we couldn't just take this to a handful of people and put together a few million. We needed, you know, 20, we needed realistically 20 to 40 million to realize my script. And at one point we had a studio attached to make it. 
and we had some stars tentatively interested in fitting into their schedules and there was a regime change and we had a meeting where they asked us if we could do it as a PG-13 film uh, and Keith Calder to his credit just asked them uh, he said have you seen the original <laughs> and 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 every single and, and like out of the three executives we were talking to like the youngest woman was just like I have and and Keith was like okay so 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 like two of the three of you like don't even really know what you're asking but it was just like basically oh we kind of you know we never we never really say no in the room we were just kind of like okay you know we'll think about it but we left that room and it, and I, it was just instantly like guys if we no one wants us to tone down the violence of the original um even though even though inevitably that is what we're going to be doing because mm -hmm. just heightening the violence is not an interesting creative decision we'd have to have a reason for that and it's gonna it's and it's a pretty hard film to compete with in terms yeah, of i was violence. gonna say so, it's already very so, heightened yeah, yeah i mean there were certain things that we didn't want to lose like the scene you know in the car where he just gets randomly picked up by some muggers and ends up stabbing them brutally like there were certain you know we which is we all knew done we wanted... like a great kind of michael bay 360 shot if i'm remembering well, correctly sometimes it was more violent because my my idea was he was he was every time he was capturing the guy and releasing him he was cutting off a little piece of him he was cutting off like his thumb or his or one of his toes so he would have worse balance every time so he was literally taking like a little bit of him every time so some of that would have been actually more violent um as opposed to the original where like he cuts his achilles tendon but it doesn't really have any effect on him at all you know i wanted it to be more like tangible, like, like things that you would really understand. Like if someone cut off like your middle toe of one foot, like you would have a hard time standing and balancing, but you could still run, you could still fight. You know, if you pushed yourself through it, you could still fight and do those things. And, and so like, I wanted it to be, you know, in some ways it was more violent and more gory than the original I saw the devil, but, um, but certainly not in terms of, you know, the rape scenes and such. You know, we we were trying to go for an R-rated film, but the notion of doing it as PG-13 <laughs> would have just resulted. I mean, it's one of those things where you can just see, you can see the path that we've been on, which is at this point, I've been working on this movie for years. I've been paid at no, at no point was I ever paid more than $30,000 total for my work on I Saw the Devil because it was all WGA low budget minimum was how they were paying me. And, you know, so at that point, I'm making like less than minimum wage, you know, for my years because I'm not doing <laughs> yeah. anything else because this was like, we're so focused on scene. So you're so tempted at those points to just say, yes, like whatever it takes to get this fucking movie made, like we'll, we will make it work. But then you, you have to stop and pump the brakes and say like, we're literally now like, like, and this happens, we've done this before. We need to stop and say, are we talking about making a movie that nobody wants to see? <laughs> um, and, and, and that's because that was what we were talking about. Right. Like as a PG 13 remake of I saw the devil with, uh, you know, American actors speaking English is just something no one wants. Like it's it's like fans of the film don't want it, and people who haven't heard of the film certainly don't want it. Were these was this after Spike Lee's Old Boy remake? Yeah, I was just looking that up actually. <laughs> it was because that. Old Boy yeah. came out around the time that we were doing the guest, and the guest was really what what got the ball rolling. Like we we were kind of working on I Saw the Devil during the guest. Um, it was it was kind of percolating like all during that time, but um. But yeah, Old Boy came out, I want to say, right around the time that we were, right around the same time as The Guest. Uh, it's 2013, maybe. Um, and yeah, and like, like you know, Old Boy didn't get slammed, uh, you know, in the same way that like Adam's Death Note got slammed for like kind of whitewashing of, you know, originally Japanese characters and stuff. That was, that was an interesting point where the cultural conversation was like very, you know, very difficult to navigate in a way where if you're making a foreign remake of, you know, 
you know, if you're making a, a foreign remake of an international film, you know, whether that's like the Korean remake of Unforgiven or whatever, you had to kind of justify it from like a cultural, uh, you know, cultural approximation perspective, which was a conversation that I think, honestly, none of us really wanted to have. I mean, we weren't trying to like steal this movie from its culture. You know? <laughs> yeah, you just wanted and, to remake and, it. Yeah, I hear. Yeah, it makes sense the, the route you want to do it. But yeah, I mean, I remember I, I didn't mind Spike Lee's old boy. And I went on to say that I didn't mind I it. Seen it. Yeah, I've, I've not I, seen it. I got yeah. ripped apart. I got destroyed and tear down just for sake. Well, it shouldn't have been your, you know, and I got destroyed and I was like, all right, I got to chill from telling people stuff I like. Well, the reason I I just felt bad. It was getting such ripped apart for just being a remake. That's what it really felt like, you know? Yeah. Our, our, our stunt guy who worked on um, our stunt fight coordinator, Clayton Barber, who did the guest in your next, uh, like worked really hard on the single take fight scene. And Spike Lee's old boy that I, I understand is cut into multiple shots in the final version so um that's all i know about it i i I, you know i think at that point i was too close to see it but i also look i I also do get it like it's it's a tricky thing because there's part of me that's like you know when 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 it got announced that we were doing i saw the devil there were a lot of people that like don't ruin i saw the devil and it's like well we're not ruining anything like the original exists it's on your shelf like perfect quality you know deleted scenes but i also kind of do get what they mean because i am a fan of these movies and I do understand that when Spike Lee makes Old Boy, and, and you know, for that point forward, whenever you say Old Boy is your favorite movie, you have to specify. I mean, like the 2003, <laughs> you know, Park Chan Wook original, uh, you know, not not the remake. You know, it's 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 Time Traveler's Wife Syndrome. We're like, I really love that book, and then the movie yeah. came out, and I had to like be like, you know, uh, like the book is really kind of different than like <laughs> the way the trailer looks. Like, you know, you you, you do kind of have to start equivocating your love for something, you know, if there's a crappy remake, it, it does a crappy remake or crappy sequel. And I guess this is what I was getting at earlier with the vagaries of, of my career and, and the, the kind of lack of theatrical success of your next um, is that like a bad remake or a bad sequel can lessen the cultural legacy of a good original. You know, it's hard to remember, you know, what you originally loved about movies that have spawned a bunch of like terrible sequels sometimes. And a bad remake can kind of culturally eclipse a foreign film, you know, especially in this era where like, you know, movies like Coda, you know, it's a remake of a foreign movie I, I hadn't even heard of, you know? So how is, you know, how's that movie going to compete in America with Coda, for example? Um, you know, culturally, it, it just isn't going to have the same impact or footprint. And, you know, in that case, maybe that's great. I don't know. I haven't seen both films, but like, you know, it is one of those things where I am sensitive to people being like, don't fuck this up. Like, like this shouldn't have been made. This shouldn't exist. You know, I hear that and I'm like, yeah, you know what? They're right. Like a lot of movies do get made that shouldn't be made and shouldn't exist. And fans do have every reason to be annoyed about that. <laughs> and like, I, I've kind of come around. I, I kind of am like, you know, now I'm very happy that we didn't make I Saw the Devil. But I think after Death Note, you know, Adam was just like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do this again. You know, people don't want this. And, and that was really the nail in the coffin. Yeah, I guess, but, you know, but again, that, that's a project that I wouldn't be surprised if five, 10 years from now, you know, I know the director, Scott Derrickson is a huge fan of the original and wants to remake it. I don't think we have I, 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 the same exact creative sensibilities, but that's a situation where I would, you know, if they want to take my script and pay me money down the road to do something with it, that'd be great. I mean, mm-hmm. I do. I, I think your original feeling of like, oh, this is such a cool concept, but you can go in different directions with it. 
um, without even commenting on the Spike Lee old boy. That was one where I was kind of surprised when they were even going to remake it because it's a very cool setup. Um, and I guess there's other ways you could go with it. But I mean, it's all building up to the big, horrible twist uh, from the original. Actually, I can't even believe I'm, I don't remember this, Steve. Do they keep the twist in the... I haven't they seen do. it since it came out. To okay, be it's honest. funny that neither so, of us remembered. But, yeah, I can't uh, remember it, but I, I just remembered it wasn't as I just rented it, and I was remember there was so much hate, and then I watched. It, I was like, you know what? This isn't this isn't as bad as everyone's saying well, it is. If you see a movie but, well after the hate, yeah. hype, I feel that's you. You know, like when I finally saw uh, the Hellboy remake that everyone had hated on for so bad. Yeah, I love that movie. Uh, the new Marshall Hellboy. Yeah, yeah this is when I, I watched it on like an airplane, and I was like, oh, "There's stuff in this I like." I don't yeah. know. I mean, <laughs> the third act is yeah. awesome. I, I missed that one. <laughs> well, I, like. I mean, look, this is this is the challenge of remaking a beloved modern classic, right? Like, like whether mm. it's Old Boy or I Saw the Devil. Do you do you adhere precisely to the original movie, which is kind of what you know fans will tell you they want, uh, is for like absolutely nothing to be changed. Um, or, you know, or do you try to kind of veer dramatically? I, in, in our case, you know, I mean, because that's the trick. I mean, if someone asked me if I wanted to remake Old Boy, I, I, which is a film I, I quite love, I, I would say absolutely not. You know, I, I really don't know how to improve upon what that original film does. But just because the original premise of I Saw the Devil of like, basically like James Bond's fiance gets murdered by like, Hannibal Lecter and he starts a, a revenge campaign against him that like where just killing him would not be satisfaction enough um, is, is, is so interesting. And in, in what it kind of says about revenge and the cyclical nature of violence, you know, obviously all vigilante and revenge films touch on those topics, but it, it's a really enjoyable way to, to get there. And, uh, you know, I really, we, we somewhat had, I think Kim Ji-woon's blessing. I think he was more interested when the producers ran by him, the fact that we were trying to basically take the first, I would say half of I Saw the Devil and then go in a completely different direction with the second half. Um, he was initially very like thumbs up. That's correct. I don't know if he was saying that mm -hmm. just because he meant like, like this movie was my only failure, <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, but, but, but I, but he was very like Kim Ji-woon himself. And obviously I know he didn't write the original uh, but, you know, but we were basing it as much on his film as as the script. And so I, I kind of he was the person we were talking to indirectly. You know, the fact that he kind of blessed a different creative direction made us feel confident because I kind of think that's how you have to do it. It's, if you're doing like a shot by shot remake, um, which by my understanding, like Spike Lee's old boy is to a certain extent at certain points that I truly I like I don't get why you're doing that unless it's literally like unless it's like literally like Gus Van Sant's psycho experiment of like, can I do this precisely the same and achieve a totally different creative effect? Um, which, you know, again, I don't know that that is an experiment that is designed to be enjoyed by any viewers, you know? Uh, so, yeah, so I, it's, it's, it's a real, I mean, I'm sure other people have said this more eloquently than me, but when it comes to remaking these films, it's tough to find like a clear winning path. Because if you adhere to kind of the original so closely, which is kind of what the fan base will tell you they want a lot of times, then it really is like, what is the point of this second work of art other than just like translating this project? Yeah, because like the let me in, the let the right one in remake. I remember that kind of got lambasted uh, by American audiences because they 
who lo- already loved the original because they are just kind of like it's it's kind of just the same thing again, but in English. It is, mm-hmm. except he replaced the CGI cats with an awesome car crash. I was going to say, great so, car crash. Like, <laughs> like, you know, so yeah, which turns out it's like Matt Reeves' thing is just he loves car crashes. Um, and he's just gotten better at that in every film. But yeah, I I, I don't know. I'm a bit of a defender of Let Me In. but, but no, it is, I like it, it too, it's, but it's just if you've seen both, yes. that's kind of the... And it didn't do well. I mean, like, again, it's not a film... Let the right one in was, you know, a big success for Magnolia on the level that they purchased it, obviously. Um, and let me in, which cost much more, you know, I don't think did very well at all. And, you know, yeah. so it is it is one of those things where, like, you kind of it's easy to get caught up in like, <laughs> excuse me, I'm, I'm still getting over a bit of COVID, as I said at the beginning of before we start recording. Um, it's easy to get caught up in kind of the IP hustle of Hollywood uh, and be like, oh, yeah, fuck, like. You know, we got to do we got to do Sonic the Hedgehog, <laughs> and 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 then you know you're like, oh no, fuck! Everyone's really mad at how Sonic looks. <laughs> yeah, um, oh, people do it, care. Yeah, and, you know, and it's and it's it's really easy to like not see like the big picture of, of what people actually want these films to be, um, which is generally just you know an hour and a half of entertainment, um, but in a specific way sometimes. And yeah, I, I really, I'm really, I personally. Am really discouraged on remakes for a while. Like it would be a very long time before I, I think I would consider a remake, and and they, it would have to be like a very, I'd have to be interested in it for like very precise reasons because that's all you know. That's all you get offered once you have any success is people yeah. like, have you ever wanted to remake, you know, X, Y, and Z? And and I saw the devil was kind of the only time that one of those meetings was ever just like, oh yeah, like yes, we would like to remake. I saw the devil. And it was a complete waste of my fucking time. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.